Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Victoria Perman. I'm really um, thrilled to be chairing this session today. Um, I just would firstly like to acknowledge that we are meeting and gathering today in the lands, the traditional lands of the Kaurna people, and that we respect their ongoing spiritual relationship with their country. Just some um, reminders, you know the drill, please turn your phones to silent. If you're tweeting, tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is ADLWW, and we encourage you to do so. For those people who can't be here, I know they'll be on their Twitter feeds, listening uh, from a distance. Um, we ask you to support our wonderful authors and um, our wonderful booksellers' imprints by buying books at the tent. We, we should feel so privileged that we are able to gather today and this week when people around the world uh, are not able to. I think we should give ourselves a round of applause for everything we've done to make this possible and to the, to the team behind the Festival and Writers Week who've had to be very agile. Um, there will be book signing, of course, at the end of this session and I'm sure Pip and Sue would love to sign books for you. Um, the session is called The, Wo the World of Words. Whew. That got me right at the beginning. Um, I'm going to introduce Pip and Sue. Pip is the co-author of the book Time Bomb, Work, Rest and Play in Australia Today and uh, a memoir, One Italian Summer. Um, the wildly successful The Dictionary of Lost Words is her first novel. It has just won the Mud Literary Prize and has been long listed for the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. <laughs> I should really say she needs no introduction, but there you go. Um, and um, Sue, welcome. Sue Butler was the long-standing editor of Australia's National Dictionary, the Macquarie Diction Dictionary, where she was largely responsible for the selection and writing of new words. And there's going to be some fantastic questions at the end of this session. I can feel it. Um, Sue's also the author of the Dinkum Dictionary, the H Factor, or as we would say here, the H Factor. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've got you started already. Um, and most recently, Rebel Without a Clause, which is uh, one of the books we'll be discussing today. Um, welcome, Pip and Sue. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to begin with you, Pip. Um, why does the world of words in the Oxford English Dictionary fascinate you? Why did you... Where did this idea come from and why did you find it? The idea came when I read The Surgeon of Crowthorne, which I'm sure uh, many of you in the audience have read. It's a pithy little non-fiction book about James Murray, who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary and one of the um, more infamous volunteers who sent in words and sentences. Um, I loved that book. I got to the end of it and the thing, you know, six months later, the thing that stayed with me wasn't um, the madman who cut off his penis. It was, it was the fact that the Oxford English Dictionary, this, this dictionary that um, I had held up, in fact, I hold all dictionaries up as being unquestionable, this dictionary was actually such a male endeavour. What I realised was all of the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary were men, all of the people paying for it were men. Um, most of the assistants were men. All the lexicographers were men. There were a few female assistants and there would have been women who also sent in words um, with sentences. Um, but most importantly, the data, essentially, that they used to define words was taken from texts. So every word in the Oxford English Dictionary had to have a textual history. 
And remembering this dictionary began as a project in the 1850s. Um, the first words weren't published until the 1880s. But we're talking about a literature um, and, you know, it didn't just come from, from literature, it came from um, uh, documents, work documents, professional documents and so on. The words could come from anywhere, but they had to have been written down. And most of the words before the 20th century were written by men. And so I suddenly realised that th this dictionary that, that we all refer to and um, all early dictionaries were gender biased. And I was curious about what words might have been left out. And in particular, I was curious about the words of women and whether um, the words from the birthing room or the laundry or other places where only women gathered and men who write books um, don't, what happened to those words? Um, and, and so I started to read a bit more about the dictionary and eventually decided I had to actually put a young woman into that context to see what it all means. Of course, I'm thinking about the literacy rates of the population at that time wouldn't have been all that high. So there was a whole language of the working class and the underclasses really that would have been ignored because they weren't written down either. That's right. And so this book is primarily about a middle class woman in, in reality. But there's another character in this book called Lizzie who's a working class woman. And for me, she's... If, if Esme, who's the main character of this story, is the woman between the lines of the dictionary... Lizzie is the woman between the lines of my book. And she's a working-class, illiterate woman. Um, she can't read or write. Uh, and, and I was hinting at that. But this is a many-layered thing um, in, in terms of, of uh, what, what is left out of the dictionary. It's many-layered. And we can talk later about slang because I, I think slang is a really interesting um, thing to talk about when we're talking about meaning. Slang words were not included in the Oxford English Dictionary on the whole, unless they were written by Dickens or Coleridge. Um, and, and so uh, what that sort of is saying is that slang words, which are words often used by the working classes, um, they're abbreviations, they're sort of, th they, you know, they're words that have morphed or evolved, um, weren't considered proper, and so they weren't included. But who's to say what a proper word is? Well you know, the upper classes and the educated are the ones who say what a proper word is at that time. Can you tell us a little about, about the research you did into the formation of that dictionary? It took decades, didn't it? Yes. So, as I said, the idea came from the Philological Society of London uh, wanted to improve on Samuel Johnson's dictionary. Um, Samuel Johnson's dictionary, I think um, Sue will correct me if I say anything wrong here. <laughs> um, Samuel Johnson's dictionary was probably the go-to dictionary at the time and had been for a, a few hundred mm, years by then. Right. It had been updated a few times. Mm. It was a quirky um, dictionary. There were some words in there, I think, that he didn't really know the meaning of, so he just made them up occasionally. Um, <laughs> it was a one-man show on it the was. whole originally and, yeah. and there were updates. And so they wanted to improve on that dictionary and, and, uh, and identify and collate every single word in the English language, present and past, so including words that were now um, obsolete. An extraordinary task which I, I liken to mapping the genome um, and probably impossible and in the end, yes, Im impossible, but they gave it a red-hot go. Um, and, and they had quite a scientific method as well. Um, but like I said, the method 
was fundamentally flawed because it included only the inclusion of textual uh, textual history, yeah. And you mentioned that men, uh, the lexicographers were all men working out of a, a garden shed in the beginning. Yeah, and, and the Philological Society of London had um, just had this desire to do this. It took many decades to get it off the ground. They couldn't find the right editor, essentially. And then James Murray, who was not one of them, James Murray was a self-taught um, school teacher from Scotland. He hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, he spoke many languages. He was an incredible um, intellect. And I think he had to convince them that he would be the right man for the job, and in fact he was. And so it didn't really kick off until he joined them in the 1870s. And like I said, the first words, A to Ant, were published in 1884. So it took about 10 years to get to A to Ant. The letter A is always the longest yeah. and hardest. Because <laughs> yeah. you're setting all the rules for everything that follows. Yes, and so. in fact that first, they called them fascicles, they, they mm. didn't, um, they published them and this was because it was a money-making exercise as well, so um, Oxford University Press were fearful they were losing money on this venture and so they, they insisted that they publish the words in small um, collections. Volumes? Or? Small, not even volumes, they were just like, yeah, small collections. So A to Ant. Yeah, yeah, that's stapled right. Stapled together pages, yeah. And, and they were called fascicles. And if you go to those original, the A and B, you know, there's all sorts of words missing that on purpose, like Africa, for instance, but America gets in. And so they change the rules kind of partway through A. So as you were saying, mm. they're sort of working out how they're doing it. Mm. Yeah. So you, as we mentioned, you ran the Macquarie for a, a, a long time. What makes a lexicographer? <laughs> um, I think a broad general knowledge um, so that uh, lexicographers can come from any walk in life, really. And, in fact, the broader the background of the group collectively, uh, the better it is for the dictionary. So um, you have to be able to... Uh, deal with information coming from all sorts of uh, subject areas and, and aspects of society and so on and, and be comfortable about doing that. Trust yourself to do that. Um, I think lexicography is somewhere between um, a science and an art. Um, there is the method. You have to be you know, diligent about finding evidence for the words that you put in, although where you find that evidence has changed a lot. Um, but then, when it comes to writing the definitions, you still have to be a good communicator. And you have to, in, the, in this very, very particular genre of, of dictionary writing, you have to capture the essence of the meaning of the word and also add then anything that you think is going to be useful to the reader, the user of the dictionary, in actually understanding what you're trying to get across. Um, so this is a, a writing skill rather than a research skill. And how did you get into the world of words? By sheer accident, as happens with many dictionary editors, I think. Um, I had finished a, uh, uh, an arts degree doing Latin and Greek and a little bit of English and linguistics. Um, I can't say I actually understood the linguistics until I got to work on the dictionary and put some of it into practice. Um, this suited me for no particular job when I emerged uh, at the end of this degree because most of the schools had abandoned uh, Latin and Greek from the curriculum. So uh, this notion that I was going to be a solid, respectable Latin teacher 
evaporated. And anyway, I didn't want to do that. I went off and taught for a year, and then I came back and did a, a bachelor of started a bachelor of music course at Sydney Uni because I'd always wanted to do that. But the nuns and my parents had decided right back in high school that music was not really a good career for a woman. I mean, all those late nights and uh, Latin was much better, much more reliable. Um, so I went back to do music because I thought something must have happened after Rachmaninoff, which was where my music education had stopped. And uh, quite a lot had happened after Rachmaninoff, so I had a lot of fun for the first year and a half and then I ran out of money. Uh, and I got a job in a chocolate factory, but I had a toothache, and I got a job in a belt factory, but I couldn't stand it. And I thought, I've got to get a got, you know, nice middle-class job and s proper money and save up some money and go back to doing music. And there was this job advertised, work on a new dictionary of Australian English. And I thought, oh, well, I've sort of got the skills to do that. So I applied... I. I'm told rather sort of grumpily and sulkily for the, for the job, and I probably sulked for the first year. But um, I gradually got interested in this whole dictionary business, and I never went back to do music. So what was your first job at the dictionary? First job at the dictionary was um, reading uh, the Women's Day magazine. I got to follow Mrs Middleton. Uh, remember <laughs> Mrs Middleton? Uh, every week, you know, I'd read The Adventures of Mrs Middleton. Um, and um, you would ring words that were of interest so that there were uh, secondary sources on Australian English that we mined for, for stuff that was already known. But we did set up a reading program of uh, books, newspapers, magazines and started a collection program. And at the same time, uh, we sat down with our base dictionary because every, every dictionary starts... Uh, some with, a, with an existing dictionary as a base. Even Dr Johnson started with existing dictionaries as his base. Um, and uh, there are very few people who, who sort of chew the end of their pencil and say, let me see, the sea, the that jelly thing that wobbles. If you remember... Um, oh, don't worry. <laughs> um, this was a made-up version of Dr Johnson's dictionary. Um, so you start from somewhere. We started from a dictionary called the Encyclopedic World Dictionary. And we started at the letter A and read it through word by word by word and said, no, that's not relevant to the Australian experience or we'll have to send this off to a specialist. And we started a collection of things to send to a number of different specialists. Um, and the brief to them was, toss out anything you think is not relevant to an Australian dictionary, add everything that you think is relevant and look at the definitions for the existing material and see if you agree with them or if you want to rewrite them for the, for the Australian experience. So we collected general words, we looked at available sources, we started to read through our base dictionary and critically and we started to collect material for specialists. The juxtaposition of that's fascinating to me, that for the Oxford it was very, very formal, and but for, for the Macquarie it was reading Woman's Day. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you were really looking for common usage and the way people spoke. Yeah. I think I realised early on that the sort of advertising material that was stuffed into the letterbox was actually as important to me 
as the uh, literary works that we were also reading. And I think you comment on that, don't you? That there's yes. something on a medicine bottle. That, that That's right. So um, while it was formal language that uh, the Oxford English Dictionary was really looking for at its core, James Murray actually had an argument with the, um, the delegates of the Oxford University Press, who were the people paying for it, about the use of newspapers um, as a source of words. They didn't want newspapers to be a source of words because they thought the tabloids, for instance, were full of um, made-up words, mm. <laughs> essentially. And Dr Murray argued, no, they are the most up-to-date mm. um, source of words for the English language, so we should be using it. He won that argument, but um, occasionally words were still left out. In fact, there's a lovely word that was... It got all the way to the penultimate... Um, it got all the way to the last proof. Yeah. A word called gossipiania, which is it was coined by an American, uh, sorry, an Australian um, sports writer, mm -hmm. and it was used a few times in newspapers on, when reporting about um, gossip, items of gossip. Mm -hmm. It means, and it was reporting on items of gossip in the sporting world. Um, it, it almost got into the Oxford English Dictionary, but at the last minute got excised. And the words that, if they needed space. The words that got excised were these sorts of, these newish words. Um, yeah. And I could say more about other words. When there was a need for space, it's like in anything, like a newspaper, um, the things that get excised were, seemed to be sometimes the, the words that were heading towards slang, uh, newer words, and, in, and some would argue women's words. So words that had been written down by women but didn't have any male corroboration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must say I'm glad that Gossipiania didn't catch on. <laughs> it's not something I've heard in sports reporting over the past little while. But you, want, you know, sometimes I wonder, did words not catch on because they were left out of the dictionary? <laughs> like, you know, it's a chicken or egg thing. Oh, Some well, words. Yeah. later on uh, Lizzie says, do they think we're going to stop using the word just because it's yes, been left out right. of the dictionary? And that's I think right. that's very true. Yeah. Mm. Um, people do sometimes still think that if we put words in the dictionary, people will use them, and that the corollary, if we take them out of the dictionary, people will not use them. <laughs> so that if we take swear words out of the dictionary, people will cease to swear. Yes. I mean, would that it was so simple. But, and um, actually, you know, so when I was doing my research, I came across letters with those arguments in them around some words which... I don't know if I'm allowed to say them or not. Maybe the C word you might want to spell. Um, yeah, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah, so I am thinking of that. So the C word, there was quite a correspondence about the C word, which was left out of the Oxford English Dictionary, the first edition. Even though it's one of the older words in mm. the English language at that time, there's evidence of that word back to the um, 13th century. Um, it was a street name, I think. I'm going to say the street name. Go the street, it. it was a street, it's now called Magpie Lane in London, mm -hmm. but it used to be called Grope Cunt Lane. <laughs> and this was at a time when, when um, lanes and streets often were named after the economic activity that took place <laughs> in, those, in those places. So that's what it was called back in 1255. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and, and Chaucer uses it. I'm not sure if Shakespeare uses it, but basically there was a lot of textual evidence for this word. Um, Sue, how would you define that word? <laughs> how would you define the word? <laughs> I'll refer you to the dictionary. <laughs> Do as my mother always said, go and look it up in the dictionary. 
<laughs> but you'd be pleased to know there's a lovely letter from a man who says the thing itself is not vulgar, so it should be in the dictionary. So because originally it wasn't a swear word. Mm. Originally it was a euphemism. Mm. And and for that, you know, but its meaning changed over time as meanings do. Up and away with euphemism. That's yeah. right. And in yeah. the Victorian time, it was a vulgar word. So, mm. Look, and it's probably a word that divides people now in the same kinds of ways. Some, some people I know would, would never, ever utter that word. Other people think it should be reclaimed. So words are political, aren't yep. they? Yeah. Very. Mm. Um, when I was um, researching the history of the Macquarie, um, I came across this quote from Professor Manning-Clark at the 1981 launch. And he said, as this dictionary shows, we also speak and write in our own way. We've always had our own pronunciation since about the 1820s and 1830s. For nearly 100 years, we've apologised for it. But I welcome this Australian dictionary because Australian English is one of the great loves of my life. Mm. What was happening in Australia at that time, Sue, where Australia kind of decided that we needed our own dictionary to reflect that language? Well, there was a, a wave of Australian nationalism um, in the 70s and on into the 80s. But, yes, in the, we started working on the dictionary in the 70s. The first edition was published in 1981. Um, there were a lot of Australiana books. There were important books like uh, the Manning-Clark's History of Australia and his sort of reference book on Australian history. Um, it was a sort of world in which we thought that um, we needed the sorts of things that every civilised society should have. We needed an opera house and we needed our own dictionary um, and, and and we could do it. There was great confidence and enthusiasm about doing this. Mind you, this was um, a, eventually a commercial undertaking. Well, no, it started, yeah, it was a commercial undertaking and as we got closer and closer to the publication date, uh, the publisher at that point I think got more and more nervous about whether Australians would actually let go of their concise Oxford dictionaries and uh, and buy this Australian English dictionary because there was still a feeling that um, we spoke British English here, except for a few swear words or you know a bit of of, of um, the the kind of colloquial language that Australians were renowned for. Uh, so really, uh, we were just. British English speakers with a bit of um, vulgar language thrown in. I mean, how we could maintain this fiction right up to 1981, I don't know, because as Manning Clark pointed out, we'd had our own accent, our own pronunciation since the, the early days of, of um, convict settlement. Um, and uh, we really only need to, to go to London or to New York and open our mouths to realise that we were speaking a very different variety of English. Mm. And on top of that, we had a history then of, of uh, 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 initially a very different environment, different plants, animals we had to find names for. Uh, we had various... We had the gold rush, we had settlement, we had um, federation... Uh, war, depression, all sorts of things in our history which all produced words that were significant and in some cases unique to Australian English. Um, and all this needed to be recorded in a dictionary that was written by Australian English speakers for Australian, the Australian English community, not, not written from uh, either America or London. We'd experienced both those mm. 
misunderstandings, <laughs> uh, the supplement to a dictionary that had a little list of Australian English words at the back, some of them not quite right. Um, we needed our own dictionary that did it thoroughly from A to Z. Do you, have you come across people who are fiercely loyal to one or the other? Is it like sort of Ford v Holden or something like that? In the early days, yes, uh, there was that kind of loyalty. Uh, so that uh, people in Melbourne were particularly loyal to their concise Oxfords. <laughs> it took a little oh. while to break this down. Um, I don't think there is that sort of uh, loyalty. I think the dictionary world is, is now divided into um, the people who sort of roll out of bed each day as if the world began with breakfast that day. Um, and who would go into a bookshop with no particular sense of history or culture and buy the dictionary that had the nicest cover and the best price, you know, whatever those two things appeal to them. Then there's the other group of Australians who do have a sense of history and a sense of where our culture has come from and who can understand that a dictionary that actually is a faithful record of that history and culture is something that's worth having. Um, so, to my mm. great delight, uh, when the dictionary was published in 1981, there were a lot of people who were just like that and who bought it with great enthusiasm. But uh, my first experience was of, of getting the early book from the printer, you know, and sort of taking it. I didn't know what to do. I looked at it and felt completely numb. And, were um, you worried about typos at that stage? I was just worried mistakes. about whether it was any good or, you know, meant anything to anyone. Um, worrying about typos came later. And we actually had a game at the dictionary of, OK, here's the latest edition of something or other. Uh, who's, who's going to spot the first typo? Uh, prize of some sort awarded. Um, and the, the latest edition, the editor said to me, please, please don't spot the first typo. I can't bear it. Um, but, yes, I took it to a party with me. Uh, very casual. Oh, I just happened to have the first copy of the dictionary in the car. Really? Oh, yeah. Zoom. Up back to the party. Here it is. And everyone started passing it around and looking up the words that they thought ought to be in the dictionary. I know exactly what words they were looking up. Yeah. <laughs> All the swear words. Come on. Uh, and they were finding them. So I relaxed. That's, I, I love what you're saying because you're, what you're saying is that it's important to um, have a dictionary or have a record of words that reflect our experience. So in Australia, compared to the UK or the US, we would have a whole lot of words to describe our weather, for instance, because it's so different. Our experience of weather mm. here is so different to the UK. Mm. And in a way, that's what my book is about. Um, the experience of being a woman is different to the experience of being a man. Mm. And yet... Um, and the experience of being working class is different to the experience yeah. of being well-educated, middle class or upper mm. class. And in Australia, the experience of being an Indigenous person is different than the experience of being a non-Indigenous person. And really at the heart of my book is that language matters. The words that we use mm. to describe our lives, our experience, what matters to us, defines us. And if, if we can't share those words mm. with everybody... They won't understand us. Um, Even worse, if they're actually blanked out by some process of yes. discrimination. Then you uh, don't have a way of expressing you have yourself. No voice at all. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Which leads me to a quote from the book Words are like stories, don't you think, Mr. Sweetman? They change as they pass from mouth to mouth, their meanings stretch or truncate to fit what needs to be said. 
Mm. And I love that because it's about the evolution of language and, mm. and words too. Mm. Um, and we want our dictionaries to reflect that, don't we? Mm. We do, yeah, yeah. Although it's a Sue very said, recent example of, of how uh, we've had to learn a whole new set of words is uh, the coronavirus last year and all the COVID words, all the words that governments have produced and politics have produced, as well as the medical words, as well as the joke words that make us feel more comfortable with the whole thing. So shortening ro uh, coronavirus to the rona suddenly makes us feel more in control. Colloquialism and slang has that sort of calming effect, amusing effect. Uh, and quasi for quarantine makes it more bearable. Do you have a favourite COVID word? I think quasi is pretty quasi. close. <laughs> uh, has anyone here heard quasi? No, it's not a South Australian thing. Well, it so. fo follows the pattern of, um, in Australia, <laughs> R becomes Z when it's shortened. So Murray is muzzer yeah. and Barry is bazza. Oh, and yeah, quarantine yeah. is quasi. Okay. Um, and, yeah. So it is around. It's it's low frequency, I admit, but yeah. it is there. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could be a Sydney thing. Um, okay. But on that too, PPE, everyone knows what PPE mm. is now. And mm. I mean, I normally hate acronyms, but I think we don't have to have personal protective equipment mentioned to us all the time. We just know what that is. Indeed. Mm. Um, we were talking before about the... the well, I was asking the question to both of you about... Um, a dictionary being a, reflecting a point in time, and almost as soon as it's published, it's old. Mm. And, and maybe that's its role, that it, it reflects a point of history. But how do we cope then with, the, with that evolution of language and the way words change and morph, as you, know, you, you wrote, Pip? Mm. What's, what's the process of getting your head around, other than reading The Woman Say, and, and ask the Middleton? Learning to live with frustration, because you know as soon as the dictionary is published, even before it, it, the book is in the bookshops, uh, you'll have been writing the words that um, need to be in the next edition of the dictionary. Uh, in a way, that's reassuring, because you know you've always got a job on the dictionary. There's <laughs> always more words kind of rolling along. Um, and those difficult decisions about what you put in and what you leave out. I remember in the first edition, um, we came across bottom of the harbour scheme but just as a bit of arcane jargon from accountants. Um, and one of the rules of the dictionary was that you'd include specialist words as long as you felt that um, uh, the, the general public might encounter these words uh, in the newspapers, you know, somewhere. They, they might come across these words, so they would go in. Uh, we looked at bottom of the harbour scheme and said, mm, that's, that's much too remote. It's... it's it's never going to be in general experience. By the time the book got out, there were headlines, you know, that high, bottom of the harbour scheme again. And so, and we'd missed it. It wasn't in the first edition, just when it was needed. <laughs> However, there's always the second edition. In those days, it was 10 years before you got to the second edition. Um, now it's four to five years for the book, and online, it's six months. We would have had bottom of the harbour scheme up halfway through the year. What's the process of deciding? I just have this image of lexicographers around a table fighting about words. What, what was the formal process of deciding which words were added to the dictionary? Uh, sometimes it was um, very easy. Um, some, some new invention, you know, some of the... Uh, uh, again, the, the COVID example, there were things which as soon as they were mentioned, you knew it ought to be in the dictionary. Baby capsule, I remember. 
suddenly we had, life didn't have baby capsules, suddenly it did. Baby capsule obviously needed to be in the dictionary. Um, but then there's, uh, I guess there's more argument about slang and whether it's going to last or not. So I can remember um, being picked up for putting bromance in the dictionary uh, because people said, oh, really? You know, is that a word? And if, even if it is a word, is it a word that should be in the dictionary? But bromance has had tremendous staying power. We're still talking about bromances that different politicians might have. Um, it, 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 it did belong. I was right to make that decision. Um, you base it on the frequency of use, and these days you don't have to read lots of books and collect slips and all that sort of thing. You can actually, you know, go out on Google and look for words and look for, for evidence of use. And um, the business of getting evidence from text was partly uh, a practical one. You can read text quite relatively quickly and find the words that ought to be in the dictionary. Whereas if you're recording people, even if you're just eavesdropping on the bus, um, it is a much more haphazard and lengthy process to, to get material. However, these days um, you have things like um, uh, Twitter, which is a halfway house between speech and writing, so that you have a much better access to, to the things people are saying to each other um, that, that might not get into more formal writing. Um, and this is very useful. Is there a committee? I and mean, what's the, oh, what's yeah, the, the administrative the process? Okay. Yeah, I want to hear about the fights. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, there, you, yes, you don't make a decision entirely alone. So I would write a first draft um, of what I thought should be included and the definitions for it and so on. And then I would hand that over to one of the other editors of the dictionary um, who would, uh, it would come back to me with all sorts of exclamation marks and queries and reallys and I think you've overlooked this or, you know, whatever, but, but all that sort of stuff. So I'd have another go at it and then hand it to another couple of different editors. So you do a process of checking and, and coming back. And sometimes if there is something that's really tricky, you do have a formal meeting and talk about it. And from my research on the book, it's exactly the same process. Yeah. Um, that was carried out for the Oxford English Dictionary just without the computer and without Google, yes. in, in, in essence. And That's if, right. if they had mm. trouble with a word, they'd send it off to a, um, a specialist, so yes. an academic who, who had special um, knowledge about a particular subject and they would yeah. help to, to draft the definition of it and so on. So. Mm. Yeah. Mind you, you had to watch the specialists because they were not naturally dictionary mm. writers um, and they uh, were all... Uh, you know, had a particular enthusiasm within their specialty so mm. that you could get a whole welter of words that they thought ought to be in the dictionary and you say, well, Maria, I, th I think that's a specialist dictionary. Yeah. We'll leave that one to someone who's doing this. And their definition writing was sometimes crazy too because um, uh, I remember having to go and talk to the woman who'd written the botany uh, definition. She was from the herbarium. Um, and there was a particular plant, we, you know, we'd read these definitions and we thought, oh, that 
what's that plant that's grown all around Sydney and it's got the most amazing red flowers? And so I went back to her and said, you haven't even mentioned the red flowers. And she said, well, they're not important. It reproduces <laughs> by means of rhizomes. So I <laughs> said, so, hmm, okay, that's very true, but I think our readers would actually be helped yeah. if we just mentioned the red flowers as well. And I think a few words slipped into the Oxford English Dictionary that weren't words, they were brand names, but for the same reason. So, you know, mm. they, they didn't want to sort of uh, leave out an important scientific word, um, but in fact every now and then they, they slipped in a brand name because maybe <laughs> the expert had just... That's what they happened to call this new metal, for instance, mm. but it was a brand. Mm. Um, and so there are a few of those in the dictionary which... Um, mm. Yeah, oh, like Hoover or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell Maybe you what they later. were, but yeah, yeah, but they were usually to do with you know new alloys or, yeah. or something that a that a company might use and had had mm. given their own okay. branding. Um, the whole but, business yeah. of brand names and dictionaries is is full of difficulties mm. because um, sometimes people grab hold of brand names, because, mm. particularly if it's Google. the first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they and they run with it, and it becomes a generic word. And then the people who own that brand name, because brand names are words that are owned by a company, um, and they're not supposed to be used by all of us, you know, mm -hmm. unless we're referring specifically to the the mm -hmm. thing that's owned by that company. Um, so they get very upset when they lose control of their brand names because the law is that if you lose control and everyone is using it as a generic, it becomes a generic and then you've got to find another brand name. Mm. And this is very upsetting. Mm. Like, like to Google, for instance. Yeah, Google. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. Biro and Bic. Biro yeah. people lost control of yeah. Biro yeah. Um, and had to come up with Bic. Oh. Not are words ever, Are words ever removed from the Macquarie? Not from the dictionary online where there's no problem of space. Um, all through the print dictionaries we battled with the, not exactly the same space problems, but within our smaller range, you know, we, we felt uh, the restrictions of, of space very keenly. And so you would have to make awkward decisions. And in the case of that Anna one, Gossipy Anna, mm. uh, we, like the OED editors, would argue, well, we do have the suffix Anna, and you can be inventive with that suffix, mm. as we all know. So you can have all sorts of compounds made up by just adding ana, and we give a few examples there mm. um, and leave it to people to work out that gossipy ana was gossip and iana. Mm. Um, and the, the Oxford English Dictionary never takes a word out um, from the full set. So the, the original, um, the first edition was 12 volumes in each volume. Mm. We've seen them. There's a beautiful set in the State Library of South Australia, actually. But each volume is about, you know, that high and that thick. And there's 12 of them how, for the first And you were saying volume. earlier in the green room, how many words in the, um, the first edition? There were about edition? half a million mm. uh, words. And then the second edition was 20 volumes. And they're working on the third edition and they don't think they'll print it because no. there's been such an explosion of words and they never take any words out... Um, I can't even imagine mm. um, how you many volumes You see, if you've decided to put a word in the dictionary, then you must have a justification for mm. that decision mm. then, which means that the word is a valid word. It might need an obsolete label or it might mm. need some... Uh, in, in the OED, it would be the list of citations that tell you where it stops. And they tell you if it's obsolete. There's a little mm. cross next to the word if it's obsolete. Yeah. So you might do all of that, but you wouldn't actually remove it because someone reading texts from the time when that word was in vogue, 
uh, all the more reason for them to have the help and support of the dictionary in finding out what the word actually means. So I can remember an historian writing to me and saying she'd come across these references to a, um, uh, having a, a glass of casuarina in around about the 1890s, something like that. Um, and what on earth was this, what could this mean? It turns out that the casuarina was a type of beer uh, which was brewed by a publican in Hobart and he had put a branch of casuarina in the beer as he brewed it and gave it a very distinctive flavour. You either loved it or hated it, I believe. They, uh, he also sold it in South Australia, so South Australians could come across casuarina around about that time. Um, and so you need to have that word uh, or have that meaning of casuarina in the dictionary mm. to explain mm. those sentences. Mm. And look, it would be remiss of me not to mention that there's another language being used on stage today, Auslan, and thanks to Amber and Jade for your interpretation. <laughs> um, we will go to questions and I'm anticipating there'll be lots. So if you do have a question, the mic is here, please um, line up and uh, we'll come to you shortly. Um, how important are dictionaries these days? Do you think they have lost that the grandeur that they might once have had? Have you ever played Scrabble? <laughs> yes. But you know, I look it up on my phone. I don't phone. know that that's grandeur. <laughs> no, I know, but just but in terms of how important. important. <laughs> be, yeah, many a family argument has to be settled by a dictionary. Though, I have to say, I no longer um, will, you know, tolerate that the dic dictionary is the arbiter of, mm. <laughs> of mm. the language. So... Um, and unless you've got the 20 volumes of the OED, you, have, you can't convince me that my misspelled word does not <laughs> exist. <laughs> I'm sure it exists somewhere. So. <laughs> yes. I think people usually narrow the field, don't they, to, yeah. <laughs> to being Australian English and therefore Macquarie yeah. Dictionary or American English and therefore Webster's and, and the OED for British English. I think that um, it's true that it's no longer the situation where Every home had to have the Bible and the big dictionary in sort of pseudo-leather, if not actual leather, binding. Um, and you wrote everyone's family names in the back of either the Bible or the dictionary, whichever one you had to hand. Um, but dictionaries still have that function of recording the words that of a, language, a particular language community. And that is invaluable uh, to everyone at different times. You know, it's invaluable invaluable to people doing research. It's, uh, it's just important to us all to have that record being maintained. Um, and even if our, our contact with the dictionary is with a tiny little pocket dictionary where you're looking up how to spell committee. Um, and for most of it's that, you know, it's a, how you spell something or, mm. or have I got the meaning right or whatever, or usage issues. Um, that somehow we all have the notion that that any form of the dictionary is linked to that great thing called the dictionary um, and that we have this sort of access to um, the complete record of our language. And that's still very important. I suspect we use them more than ever. Um, I think I, not a day go, goes by when I don't pick up my phone and look up the meaning of something or how to spell it. Um, I do that quite mm. a lot because I'm a writer um, and because I can't spell. But... Um, but I think we might use them more than ever because they're more accessible now. Mm. Yes. Um, and we have this resource on hand. Why not use it? Mm. And we trust it. 
so, yeah, I actually think they're probably more important than ever, though we don't get the leather-bound volume off the shelf, so we don't realise, perhaps, that we're relying on it so mm. much. Yeah. Um, you both mentioned the, the commercial imperative behind the publication of the OED and the Macquarie. Is it easier to put new words in the dictionary now that um, online, the online dictionary is the master record? Because printing is expensive. Um, people might not... They're not going to hit the bestseller lists, are they? So oh, um, sure, that's that's very true. You don't have that anxiety with the dictionary mm. online. You can do anything there that's useful, and in fact, the opportunity for the dictionary online to expand its usefulness in all sorts of ways is there if we could just um, harness the resources to do it. Um, the dictionary online is 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 very. Um, is useful to us because we have it with us on our phones and so on. It, it's in a way a shame that um, when you look something up in a digital dictionary, it takes you almost too quickly to what you want to know. <laughs> and you don't get that sense that you get from um, opening the Macquarie Dictionary in its book form and just sort of browsing through the pages. Mm. You don't. Uh, there you get the sense of what the dictionary is about as the record of Australian English. Um, even with a sort of browse facility online, I don't think that you quite get that same sense. But you do get a certain sense of gratitude when the thing that you want to look up is there. Yeah. <laughs> There's no happy accidents, is there, when you're looking for a particular word and you find something else and say, oh, that's what that means. Mm. Or, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, we will go to questions. I will just ask people, if you have a particular pet hate word or anything, that's not really a question. I'm sure we all have them, but if you could... Keep to questions, not statements. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the session. Um, my professional background is linguistics, and I love the Macquarie Dictionary, and I loved your book as oh, well, Pip. Um, my question is, uh, uh, and prompted by reading the book and from what you've said today, I wonder, Sue, if you could comment on what, strategy, what strategies there are in the compilation of the Macquarie Dictionary or other dictionaries for actually trying to ensure that you do get the diversity in class and gender and ethnicities that you've been talking about and that is so central to Pip's book? Mm. What kind of strategies do you have to make sure you get that, that kind of breadth and diversity? Okay. Well, Dr Johnson tried to write the best English. We've moved on from there to uh, James Murray, who tried to write all, you know, be a faithful record of all English, uh, but failed because of the problems, you know. We move on from there to the end of the century where you have the discovery of the corpus, uh, the big database of texts, which is going to take out that kind of... Uh, uh, filtering mm. problem so that the, co the computer will just be totally objective. It will count up the number of citations for a particular word and, and mm. tell you, you know, and it won't have that um, uh, thing that you get with readers where they see one word but they just don't see another one because it's not what they think is a word. Um, however, the corpus, we all rapidly discovered, to be useful to a dictionary it has to be huge because um, particularly slang, uh, you have to look a long way before you find it. Um, and it also, um, I forgot the thread I was going to, the corpus difficulties. Um, it, can, it can count things up for you. It can find things that you wouldn't notice, like I remember seeing tea things um, and thinking, 
the computer found that for me as a two-word mm. thing un occurring a number of times. I would never have thought of it, even if I'd read it, uh, you know. But when you think about it, see things is not transparent, as we say in dictionary jargon. You can't work it out, even if you know what T is and you know what things are. Mm. You can't work out what T things are. So um, it certainly was an enormous help to, to have that kind of um, backup from a computer corpus. But then again, it was a business of what you put in it is what you get out of it. And so we had to be very conscious of the fact that we were trying to supplement the canon of, of fiction and non-fiction with texts and newspapers, but with then other sorts of texts, menus, um, uh, all sorts of things. I mean, even uh, the literary canon, we had the best Australian writers in, but we found that Norman Lindsay had a much better ear for the slang of his day than any of the much more respected writers. So we started looking around for people who might not have been, you know, at literary festivals, mm. but who had this ear for, for the language around them. So you do have to keep looking at your corpus and thinking, what do I need to add to it to actually reflect the language as it is? It sounds like the corpus is a bit like the census. It gives you a lot of quantitative data, but unless you um, have qualitative um, evidence to um, flesh it out, you mm. can't explain it properly. That's right, you can't mm. rely on the corpus alone. Next question, thanks. Hello, thank you very much. I tried to help migrants and refugees cope with Australian vernacular, and I've used Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson. I think that's a bit dated. Move on. <laughs> what <laughs> tools would you suggest? We had, uh, when we were at Macquarie University, I remember a uh, um, Chinese student, I think, was coming across the lawn and saying, do you have, what tools do you have for me to use? Because my English is too good. I've learnt it all out of textbooks and I, I can speak very, very proper English with a beautiful British English accent, but this is not helping me at the pub. Um, uh, what do you have? So we gave him a small book that we'd done of um, Australian colloquialisms and, and sent him off to study that. Um, so I would recommend, in fact, I know, I've noticed a lot of the universities actually put up uh, these glossaries of, of current Australian slang to, to help out their students in, in becoming slightly more like human beings in the Australian context. I remember a bunch of American students coming over one summer to do their overseas culture trip, and this lot had opted to come to Australia, presumably because the surf was good, um, and I had them once a week, and I taught them one week that um, they would be referred to as a bunch of septics uh, and explain what septics meant in rhyming slang, septic tank yank. Um, and then they came back the following week and said, oh, we went to, to Manly, uh, and a group came up to us and said, oh, a bunch of septics, are you? And we knew, we knew what they meant. <laughs> I thought, right. Chalk one up for the success of the course. So, so yes, some, some current up-to-date reference on slang, I think, is probably what's needed. Thank uh, you for that. Next question. My question is to uh, Sue. I'd like to know how Macquarie University, as a very new university at the time, managed to snaffle this project from the likes of Sydney or Melbourne or uh, one of the more established places. And right. presumably you get a very strong royalty stream from it too, which has been very good. Uh, 
the royalty stream is possibly not as big as you imagine it to be. Um, and some amount of that did go to the university. But the reason that we ended at Macquarie, up at Macquarie, was really Arthur Delbridge. Um, Arthur had, and John Bernard had been at Sydney University where there had been this talk of doing a dictionary, but nothing had come of it. Um, then there, uh, Brian Clouston was a, uh, you know, one of the sort of um, publishers riding this tide of Australian nationalistic feeling, and he had produced a reading set of reading books for Australian schools. Uh, he had managed to to oust the sort of British readers with Holly and Snow and and all that sort of thing and replace them with Australian readers with kangaroos and gum trees and stuff like that. And he said, what I need to go with the readers is a truly Australian English dictionary, a, a smaller one. And uh, he sent off an editor to Arthur Delbridge who had established a, a linguistics department at Macquarie University with a very good reputation um, and approached Arthur to, to set up a committee to do this new Dictionary of Australian English. And Arthur managed to persuade him, in turn, that starting with a little sort of school dictionary was not the point to begin, that you needed to start with a, a more complete record than that and then work down to the smaller dictionaries. So that's how we ended up at Macquarie. Thank you. Next question. Hello, yes. The the reason we chose um, Pip's book for our book group was looking at the theme of um, women in, in the workplace. Um, and I just wondered, Sue, you obviously broke through that glass ceiling to get to the position that you did, but did you find, well, this is for both of you, have you found any prejudices against women in your areas at all, in your careers? Uh, I think that, as I said, I ended up in the dictionary by sheer accident. That was sort of true, apart from um, Arthur and the editorial committee, that wasn't uh, an accident. But for the most of us who were the nine to five workers on the dictionary, um, we'd come from different sorts of backgrounds. We had a librarian, which was very useful. Um, uh, and we became the nine to five people, and I became the person who kind of organised the nine-to-five routine of the dictionary. So I eventually became the person who could say to Arthur, mm, no, that's not right, that's not how we're, do we're doing it this way. <laughs> uh, this is the style guide for the dictionary, I've written it. Um, this is how we're approaching this problem. And Arthur still had lots of wisdom to offer, but his grasp of the day-to-day -day running of the dictionary was not as good as mine because he wasn't there day to day uh, running the dictionary. So it was that kind of growing into it um, by accident. And then it, when it all became formalised, um, I was very, uh, with the notion of a publisher taking it over and, and producing the book, um, there was a very solemn meeting and I was... Uh, uh, summoned to this to, for them to explain to them that they thought that I actually ought to be one of the editorial committee. Um, so that was a great honour. So that was a sort of acceptance on everyone's part that uh, what had happened by accident was now, you know, for real. <laughs> My answer to that, has there been prejudice in the workplace because I'm a woman, is of course. 
um, I don't know if anyone was here to see um, Julia Gillard yesterday, but I was, in fact, we were having, we had a little conversation about this in the green room. Um, I, I used to be an academic and, uh, as, and, in fact, the senior person on a project, and I would walk into a room with a whole lot of businessmen with my research assistant who was male, and they would all shake his hand and not mine. Um, and, yeah, I, I just think, of course, it, it's systemic, and it still is. Um, and, you know, I can speak up for myself sometimes, but not all the time. Um, and a lot of women haven't got that um, privilege. So, yeah, of course, even now. <laughs> I'm sorry, we've run out of time for questions. Um, I'm just mindful of the time. Um, Sue, you blog about words. Where I can people indeed. find you? Um, just Google on Sue Butler, lexicographer at large. I decided to call myself when I stopped being <laughs> a lexicographer confined, um, and, and it will come up. But it's www.suebutler.com.au. Uh, uh, yeah, just Google it. I can't be found anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and Pip, what are you working on now to I'm follow working... up this outrageous success you've had? <laughs> I'm actually working on a companion novel, so it's not a prequel or sequel, but it is set at the Oxford University Press with a bunch of bindery women. So at the time, during World War One, before World War One, um, the only job women could get at Oxford University Press was in the bindery. And essentially, it's a woman who's been told her job is to bind the books, not read them. So. Oh, well, we can't wait for that. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Pip Williams, Sue Butler. Thank you very much. Thank you.